0: So, as I said, this this sermon is meant to be the opening word of our conference, and that opening word is less about what we are going to be discussing and more about how we will discuss it, less about the content of our conference and more about the culture of our conference, because that matters a lot on this issue. What I want to do is I want to ask how Jesus himself would engage the sexual revolution, this revolution that has, in many ways, constructed a new social order in our society. How would Jesus engage the world that is upon us? When my oldest oldest son was little, he drew a picture for me and gave it to me as a gift. He was So excited to give it to me. I said, oh, thanks, buddy. I love it so much. And then he asked the question that every parent fears. Daddy, can you tell what it is? So I'm looking at it. Can't tell much. Except there was a boy with curly hair and a UK shirt on. Uh, For those who don't know, my son has curly hair. He's a big fan of UK. And so I said, oh, it's you. And he said, no, Daddy, come on. I said, well, who is it? And uh, he seemed surprised and shocked that I couldn't tell. He said, you really can't tell who that is? And I said, buddy, it, 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 looks, it looks just like you. He said, oh, come on, Daddy, that's Jesus. I said, Jesus? He said, yeah, look, he's walking on water. And uh, granted, there was a blue line beneath the curly-headed UK Jesus. Fair enough. I said, "Hold! do you think Jesus looks like you? He said, well, yeah. If that is not a window into the human heart, I do not know what is. God made us in his own image. Since the fall, we have sought to remake God in our image. We craft a God who believes what we believe, loves what we love, hates what we hate, judges the way we judge, and so forth. And this, I believe, is what is playing out in the divide over human sexuality in our society. And so I want to begin our discussion by allowing Jesus, the true manifestation of God, to challenge our false conceptions of God that we have created. And in our passage, he's going to do that in two ways. Jesus is going to confront self-righteous sexuality and then secular sexuality. Let's look at both. Begins with this challenge to self-righteous sexuality. Verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, we, are, we who are familiar with the New Testament know that we're supposed to uh, vilify the scribes and Pharisees. They're the bad guys, right? But if you were living in their context and you consider yourself a religious social conservative, then chances are you would have held them in high esteem. They were the gatekeepers of religious values and morality in their society. But these religious conservatives hated Jesus more than anyone. And what's so interesting about their hatred for him is that the views of Jesus would qualify him as a religious conservative. Judea, where Jesus lived, was on the outskirts of Uh, Rome's empire and certainly had more of a presence of traditional Jewish religion than the pagan uh, centers of the empire, which were notorious for hedonism. But Judea was still Roman occupation, and so it was this hotly contested intermingling of traditional Jewish morality and Roman hedonism. Now, if you look at Jesus's life and teaching He's clearly on the Jewish, Jewish side of the debate. I mean, I think flawless obedience to God's moral law qualifies him as a moral religious conservative. And yet, the scribes and Pharisees, the very, the very gatekeepers of Jewish morality, hated him. And even more interestingly, it was the quote-unquote immoral of society that loved Jesus the most. Now just pause and consider how unique that is. There was something about the morality of Jesus that made him offensive to the moral and appealing to the immoral. Those you, because of his views, those you think should love him, hated him. And because of his views, those you think should hate him, loved him. So why is that? How can we make sense of this paradoxical morality of Jesus? Well, what transpires here is going to show us. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? I don't have time to explain the controversy over Old Testament law, its capital punishment system, only to say, for our purposes, that it's being misused here in the passage. The scribes and Pharisees don't really care about the law, they claim to hold in such high esteem. And we see this in a glaring omission. Only the woman was brought to Jesus. According to Israel's law, both woman and man stood condemned, which actually was a revolutionary concept to patriarchal abuse of their time. But tellingly, it's only the woman that the scribes and Pharisees bring to Jesus. They don't care about the law. They're using the law. And this poor woman For something else, and the next verse says so explicitly. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They think they've trapped him. You see, Jesus has garnered a reputation as a friend of sinners. Tax collectors, prostitutes, gluttons, drunkards, society's worst were welcomed as friends by Jesus, so much so that he was even falsely accused as a drunkard himself. This is what the Pharisees could not um, understand or tolerate about Jesus. And so they bring this woman caught in adultery to Jesus as if to say, okay, here's one of your friends. Will it be the law or her? You can't claim to love the law of God and not condemn those the law condemned. Will you love the law or will you love this transgressor? Well, Jesus gets out of their trap by showing them the true meaning of the law. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Some people like to speculate about what he's writing on the ground there and stuff. That, that, that's really not the point of the passage. Those details are there uh, just to paint a picture of Jesus kind of casually indifferent and unconcerned about what seems to the Pharisees as an impossible dilemma. It's as they say, this is silly. But they kept pressing, and so he stands up and says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. History's greatest mic drop. That's been quoted countless times. As only Jesus can, with one sentence, he gets out of their trap and now has them trapped. And he traps them, not by compromising the law, but by his commitment to the true meaning of the law. Essentially, Jesus is saying, you want to talk about the law? Let's talk about the law. Where do you stand? Now listen, I understand that the laws of the Old Covenant are ubiquitous and severe. Those who have read the first five books of the Old Testament know it is an exhausting exercise, isn't it? So many rules about everything from diet to, yes, sex. But what if the exhaustion you feel in reading the Mosaic law is the entire point of the law? Moses organized his nation among an otherwise lawless world. And so here comes this new nation with expansive laws, as if to say to the lawless ancient world, God actually has rules for everything. And in this way, the entire corpus of Israel's law reveals just how holy Israel's God is. Good luck trying to meet this standard. It was exhausting. And the exhaustion was the entire point. It led everyone who tried to keep up and meet the standards of God's righteousness to admit the Apostle Paul's famous conclusion, there is none righteous, no, not one. When confronted with the holy standards of a holy God, righteousness is off the table for everyone. And this leaves us with two options. Confess unrighteousness or turn to self-righteousness. Either we give up and admit unrighteousness. I'm a sinner. No mistaking it. Or we turn to self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a, a form of law evasion. It seeks to justify oneself by how We measure up not by how we measure up to God, but how we measure up to everyone else. You're not morally competing against God's law in a competition you cannot win. You are competing against the morality of others in a competition you think you can win. Simply put, if holiness of God is clearly off the table, I will turn instead to holier than thou. Therefore, what self-righteousness requires is an overemphasis on the immorality of others and a de-emphasis of my own immorality. Again, we recreate God in our own image, thinking that God is indifferent toward my sins, but judges the sins of others the way I do. And that's what Jesus is confronting in our passage. He says to the self-righteous Pharisees, how about we look at you as well? I'm not going to let you over, overemphasize her sin and de-emphasize your sin. So sure, the righteous among us are welcome to cast a stone, but the self-righteous here are not allowed to. Okay. Applying this to our societal debate over sexuality. I think it's safe to assume that Jesus would agree with a biblical sexual ethic considering he wrote the ethic. And yet I firmly believe that were he here in this cultural moment, his first and fiercest rebuke would not be towards secular sexuality, but towards self-righteous sexuality. Again, self-righteousness is an evasion technique that requires an overemphasis on the immorality of others, and a de-emphasis or perhaps even ignoring and hiding our own immorality. And this is how evangelicals have failed this moment. Test your hearts, brothers and sisters, here at the beginning of the week. Is your sexuality qualified to cast a stone at the sexual revolution? It says this woman was caught in adultery. I wonder how you define adultery. Adultery. May I share with you how our confessional standards, the Westminster Confessions of Faith, define adultery? There's a section in our catechisms that expounds upon each of the Ten Commandments. Let me quote from that. Question, what is the Seventh Commandment? Answer, the Seventh Commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Next question, what are the sins forbidden in the Seventh Commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the Seventh Commandment are adultery, fornification, rape, incest, homosexuality, and all unnatural lusts. All unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections. All corrupt or filthy communications are listening thereunto. Wanton looks, impudent behavior, prohibiting of the lawful, lawful and dispensing of unlawful marriages. Allowing, tolerating, keeping, or resorting to brothels. Entangling vows of the single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at a time. Uh, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste fellowship, explicit songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and just in case everything wasn't covered, it ends with, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanliness in ourselves. How'd you do? According to the confessional standards of our church, every single person in our church is an adulterer. And if you say, well, that's just those crazy Puritans and their puritanical morality. Fine. We'll let Jesus define adultery. His is less complicated. Anyone that looks with lust at another has committed adultery. This is not minimizing the devastating effects of adultery in the conventional sense, which many of you have suffered from. And even the confessions recognize that some sins are more grievous in their consequences. The point I'm trying to make is the point Jesus is making in our passage. Is your sexuality qualified to cast a stone at those you view as sexually immoral? Do you minimize, excuse, or even just flat out ignore and hide your sexual immorality while fixating on a culture of immorality? Do you view the LGBTQ community as perverse while excusing your sexual perversions as normal struggles? Are you angry over an LGBTQ agenda while obeying the agenda of your own illicit desires? Do you find a gay pride parade repulsive while reveling in repulsive pornographic images on your screen? friends? this is where you find yourself this morning then I can tell you the number one application of this conference up front before we even get going. Repent and renounce your self-righteous sexuality. Perhaps your only application from this week is verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman. Perhaps the only application for you is to walk away from the debate, leave the world alone. And give singular focus to your own broken sexuality. Now, although Jesus' first and strongest challenge is directed toward the self-righteous sexuality, yes, he does have a challenge here for secular sexuality. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Such a beautiful exchange we're going to return to in a moment. But notice he doesn't end there. His final word is this, go, and from now on, sin no more. And therein lies the challenge to secular sexuality. We're going to discuss this in detail during the conference quite a bit. But what has transpired in our culture is a convergence of many things, leading in essence to one thing, the preeminence of the self. Self-identity, self-determination, self-expression. As Carl Truman says, the rise and triumph of the modern self. And for a variety of reasons that we will discuss, this concept of self has been inextricably united to sexuality in particular. My sexuality, my sexual orientation, expression, my sexual fulfillment, my sexuality is no longer a part of me, it is me. Thus, the term sexual identity. And this is why mere tolerance on this singular issue, merely agreeing to disagree with civility, that is is not enough for secular sexuality. What is demanded is more than respect and kindness and love and so forth. What is demanded now is what? Affirmation. We must be affirming of any and all sexual expressions and lifestyles. Why? Because my sexuality is now me. And therefore, to not affirm my sexuality is to not affirm me as a person. So this then becomes the one area in our society where disagreement is off the table. We can disagree about everything, every area, and still be friends, the best of friends. Sports, politics, religion, you name it, we can disagree, fiercely disagree and still love each other. But the triumph of secular sexuality is that you can't disagree with me in this one area because to do so is to disagree with me, my core identity. You're not disapproving of my opinion or even my actions. You're disapproving of my very existence. And so nothing is more offensive ...to our secular world than a Jesus who disagrees with our sexuality. Jesus is offensive to every culture in unique ways. For our culture, in our day, a Jesus who has the audacity to disagree with our sexuality... ...has risen to become the highest offense and greatest stumbling block to Christianity. And I understand, fully aware, that many churches have chosen to remove that stumbling block... And craft, again, in our own image, and craft Jesus in the image of our culture to make him more palatable to this cultural moment. But I just don't want to insult anyone's intelligence. More than that, I don't want to insult the Jesus I call Lord. By recreating him into an image that meets the demands of the sexual revolution, it is what it is, he is who he is. As his follower, he gets to disagree with me and tell me what to do with my body. Tell me what to do with my sexuality. And yes, I want you to know that if you want to, this, my, my skeptical friends checking out Christian, if you want to follow him, it is a choice to likewise let him disagree with you and tell you what to do. He gets to say to you what he says to this woman in response to her sexual sin. Go and sin no more. Now, if my skeptical friends just can't accept Jesus on those terms, I understand. It is a cross to follow Jesus. And perhaps nowhere else will we feel that more, that death more than in the area of our sexuality. But what if there is resurrection waiting for you on the other side of that death? What if life is found not on your terms, but his? If you will not accept a God who disagrees with you, then you are essentially doing what my son did at his drawing. You are saying the only God I will accept is me. Well, I'm wondering if you have the humility... To assess your life with you as your own God. Specifically, in light of this passage and our conference this week, how is life with you in charge of your sexuality? How is life with you doing what you want to do, indulging what you want to indulge? If you are like most, then I'm betting your greatest regrets, your deepest shame, Your most painful wounds, your most intense sadness stems from something sexual. As we will see this week, there is nothing more powerful than erotic love, and that's why erotic love hurts the most. You in charge of your own erotic desires is a treacherous thing. And every time, every time we are wounded by the erotic, It is because we have done or someone has done to us something Jesus disagrees with. What if you need to be told what to do? What if the supposed sexual liberation has proven to be a cruel oppressor? What if the author of your sexuality needs to tell you what to do with your sexuality? What if Jesus is willing to disagree with you because he loves you? Jesus is so affirming of you. He doesn't define you by your sexuality. He defines you by the very image of God. And Jesus is profoundly image of God affirming. He doesn't define you by your sexual shame, regrets, trauma, perversions. He sees you and he loves what he sees. And he wants to forgive and love and cleanse And heal and protect and bless you forevermore. Will you bow the knee and let him? You have to bow the knee. But will you let him? I promise he will not treat you like so many of his self-righteous followers have. You already saw what he does to the self-righteous. Now I would like for you to behold what he does with the unrighteous. I want us all, every single one of us, to picture ourselves in this scene. You've been caught. Bring to mind your sexual shame, your secrets, your desires, perhaps perhaps something that you're planning on taking to the grave. I want you to bring it to mind, that which you keep hidden, in, and imagine it's been exposed for all to see. And you're on the ground, Cowering and trembling over your exposure. And you're surrounded by a crowd of condemnation. Standing with stones in their hand. Ready to heap them upon your shape. And probably you're in that crowd, right? Nobody condemns me more than me. But thankfully someone else is in the crowd. His name is Jesus. And on your behalf, he says, unless there's anyone here without sin, leave my friend alone. And one by one, your condemnation walks away. And how just you and Jesus? And he bends down and he looks into your eyes of regret and shame and he says, is there anyone left? And you say, no one. That's actually not true because Jesus is still there. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. The only one qualified to cast a stone is the only one left with you. But he doesn't pick up a stone. He looks into your eyes of regret and says, Neither do I condemn you. But here's the reality. He can't, he can't say that. The Pharisees, though full of self-righteous hypocrisy, were right. Jesus can't love the law and not condemn those the law condemns. As much as you may want to say, you want to hear him say, neither do I condemn you. He can't say that. Well, if he can say it, if he is willing to die the death that she deserves and you deserve. And Jesus is willing. When Jesus offers the word, neither do I condemn you, he seals his own condemnation. My son drew a picture of Jesus who looks like him. We say, it's crazy. It's not entirely untrue. What God saw in Jesus hanging from the cross was me, was you, all your sins, all your shame, all your regrets, all your perversions, all of it. Jesus bore on the cross of condemnation so that he can say to you and say to me, neither do I condemn you. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are willing to do whatever it took to cleanse us, to forgive us, to heal us. Thank you that you have not chosen condemnation, but have chosen to receive our condemnation. As we enter into this week, we want to repent of our self-righteousness. We want to repent of the ways that we have cultivated sexual sin in our own lives before we ever look anywhere else. We're sorry, but we thank you for this table and the promise that neither do I condemn you. May we receive it as than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen.